You can go ahead and be seated. I want to share with you today a passage in Mark 14. And I'm going to say at the outset, I've got two messages for the next two weeks. One is a recipe for spiritual failure, and one is a recipe for spiritual success. So I think the 9 o'clock service was caught a little off guard, so I'm going to warn you. <laughs> you might want to, if you've got seat belts, put them on. Um, but as you'll see in this passage, the setting is a Passover meal. And Paul instructs us that we are to, and it's interesting because he's speaking to a, a Greek church in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, where he says, get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch. And what he's referring to is that before you would engage in making the Passover dinner, you would not only get the ingredients you needed, but you would get out of the house that which you did not need and which not, did not please the heart of God to be there. And so whereas uh, Thanksgiving or Christmas, we might you know, throw some mac and cheese in if we burn the turkey, uh, uh, a, a Passover dinner was very specific in the way that it had to be prepared and what could and could not be in the home when it was eaten. And so understanding this, this being the context, I want us to look at Mark 14. We're going to start in verse 22. I'm going to go through oh, about 10 verses, but don't shut your Bible because we're going to continue on in this passage uh, as we move forward in this message. But Mark 14, 22 says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we just ask God that we would be able to honor you by hearing from your spirit today. Father, you have a powerful purpose. You have called us and you have redeemed us, Lord. Father, not just wait around for Jesus to come, but to occupy until he comes. Father, you've called us to, to be world changers. You've called us to be a bride making herself ready. You've called us to collect oil and to have the enough amount before the return of the bridegroom. And I pray, Father God, that this word, this message, and most importantly, your spirit accomplish your purpose in this place today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Each of us right now are adding ingredients that will determine the outcome of our lives. I want you to think about that. That's rather sobering. But if I make a statement, and having served as a, a denominational official, I had the privilege in many different parts of the country, uh, in many different types of churches, and to many different cultures, to preach. And if I went into any of them and asked them, is the church more holy? Is the church more powerful? Is the church more impactful today than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago? Every church I visit would say no. And so I know as we look in the Word of God that God calls us to purify ourselves and to make ourselves like a bride preparing herself for her groom. 
If we're not doing it, it's not because God does not want to accomplish that. It's because we are resisting the will of God. Let me give you a principle here as we begin, and that is that God will not let the finished product of your life occur by chance or accident. By His Word, by His Spirit, through His body, as Ephesians 4 tells us, God shows Himself to be a purposeful and intentional God in the manner in which He relates to His people. Unlike the worldly idea that God just kind of wound up this planet and sits back and watches, you know, like Bette Midler from a distance, the Bible teaches us about an intentional God. Yes, He allows free will. Yes, He allows us to experience the consequences of our rebellion and of the fall of mankind from grace. But in the midst of all that, He intervenes continually to draw us closer to Him. The greatest example is John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. And what we're going to see in this passage is that even when we fail, even that when God knows we're going to fail, the character of God is such that He warns us about our failure. I want you to think about somebody, maybe you knew that in a couple of years they were going to get a divorce. Would you warn them? Now hold it there. I didn't say your counsel would change anything. I simply said if you knew, meaning that it was a fixed an absolute certainty that this was going to happen. Most of us, if we knew that to be true and we knew that the actions were unchangeable and unavoidable, we'd probably say, you know what, I'll just keep my mouth shut and just leave it alone. But God can't do that. Why? His very nature dictates that even when our minds are set, He will still speak to us. Why? Because on the other side of it, we will learn something about his trustworthiness. That's why Jesus would later say in Luke 22, I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. I think of Isaiah who's in the throne room of God. God has drawn him up there. He's already a prophet of God. But God has another level to take him to. And so God says, who will go and whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And God, the next thing that God says is, the message that I'm going to give you is not going to be received by these people. They will be ever hearing, but never receiving. Their hearts are hard. Well then, Lord, why are you sending the prophet out if they're not going to receive it? Because at the end of it, on the other side of it, after the judgment has occurred, after the consequences have happened, they will know that I am a God that loved them and tried to warn them from their ways. None of us, when we stand before the Lord, and I think any of us who have been in the Lord any length of time, are looking for Jesus to return. We're looking at what's going on around us. Uh, uh, man, a hundred years ago, the church would say, there's no way that a third of mankind could be wiped out like that. Now each of us could probably think of two or three ways off the top of our head for that to happen. I remember when I was a young Christian reading the book of Revelation and thinking, boy, this is so outdated. Nobody beheads anybody anymore. What we're seeing in our generation, what we're seeing in our world is the culmination of what the Bible says will happen and we are the generation seeing that happen. Now, we know that two things are going to happen. Jesus said the church, what is actually the church, will purify herself. Not, isn't that interesting? It doesn't say my spirit will come and purify. The Bible says she has purified herself like a bride making herself ready. Now that presumes that God has already given us the tools and Ephesians says that he has given us every spiritual blessing in God that we need. So we, on one hand, the church will purify herself and make herself ready, but also Jesus warns us, Paul warns us, that we'll, there will be that which calls itself the church that will fall away. 
the great falling away that Jesus spoke of will happen, the great apostasy where nobody will receive teaching. I tell you what, I never had to before now, and I'll just be honest with you, I never had to before now get up behind a, or behind a pulpit, whatever you call that, I never had to stand up before the people of God and worry about people leaving if I preach the truth. But I do in this generation. And I think most preachers do in this generation. Because I know that there are people who are going to hear the truth and are going to react harshly. And they're going to say, how dare you say that? How dare you step on my toes? But the truth is that if you have eggs and flour and vanilla extract and saltening and short, you're just one oven away from a vanilla cake. And some of us have all the ingredients for spiritual failure and we're one oven away from that happening. And that's where we mess up. We try to avoid the oven instead of throwing out the ingredients that shouldn't be in our lives. That's why we talk about leaven in the Old Testament denoting sin and the Passover. And why Paul says, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This relates to the Passover. Like I said, he's speaking to a Greek-speaking Roman audience, and yet he's reminding them of the symbolism of the Passover. So what I want us to do today is look into the Word at the recipe for spiritual failure and see if those ingredients are sitting on the shelves of our lives and get rid of them if they are. Now, it's an interesting message because, like I said, it presumes a working understanding of the Jewish Passover that before the meal could be prepared... The ingredient of leaven, which symbolized different things, Paul says, must be removed. But he also says this in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. Now he says that the old yeast symbolized sins like malice, wickedness, insincerity, falsehood. And he says get rid of that so that you may be as you really are. And I don't want you to miss those four words. Because let me lay something on you before I hit you with the hard stuff. And I warned you, I warned you, the stuff in life that you hate, the stuff in your life that you hate, ain't you. It's what the enemy wants to be you, but it's not you. When you see that stuff, when you see the sin that's climbed back into your life, understand that is not who you are in Christ. It's only who you are if you choose to allow it to be. That's why the Bible reminds us Christ was the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. So if he is the fulfillment of what was symbolized by the lamb, then what was symbolized by the yeast must also be dealt with. Look, Jesus didn't just spiritually deal with the weight of sin. He literally bore a cross. He literally felt whips and nails. And he expects you and I to literally deal with the yeast of sin in our lives. And so that brings us back to our initial text in verse 29 where Jesus is speaking to Peter and Peter says, even if everybody else falls away, I won't. The first ingredient to spiritual failure, and guys, we've seen a lot of them. We've seen a lot of this. I, I was sharing earlier, I remember being a young Christian when the Jimmy Swaggart scandal happened in the church. And my pastor standing before the congregation saying, I don't believe this. I think this is a lie, and I think this is something that was concocted by hell. Now, we found out it was the truth. But the interesting thing was, nobody could believe it back then. People were shocked. Pastors just don't engage in that behavior. We don't see ministers falling like this. 
Now, if we don't see two or three a month, we're surprised. That's where the church has gotten. We're the frog in the kettle. This is becoming normal to us. So the first ingredient that we need to get rid of is spiritual pride. Am I still grateful? Or do I see myself as undeserving of the blessings of God in my life? I want to tell you something. The level of your joy in this life will not be determined by your accomplishments or your possessions. The level of joy that you experience will be determined by your gratitude. I love my wife. I love my kids. Wouldn't trade them for anything else. I love the Bridge Church. I love being pastor here. Now, somebody could come up to me and say, there's better churches. There's better kids. There's a better wife than you have, maybe. But I don't deserve what I have, so why would I worry about something greater? When I'm focused on how undeserving I am, I look at all the blessings of God and just receive them joyfully. Once we start believing, I deserve that promotion. I deserve that new car. I deserve a better marriage. I, de I love watching commercials. You'll see it now. How many commercials use the word deserve? Because it plays to our ego. And now you're going to go home and you're going to be watching and go, man, I never noticed that before. You weren't supposed to. The devil doesn't want you to notice. You deserve this health care plan. You deserve this car. You deserve this relationship. You deserve... All. Ask yourself the question. I do. Sometimes I talk to my TV. Y'all do it when you're watching football. So don't, don't laugh at me. I've seen y'all... When somebody says you deserve this, say to your TV, why? What have I done to deserve more than I have? Spiritual pride, it causes us to think that not only are we better than we are, but we're better than others. Jesus just told Peter, this is who you really are. You're a wreck who's about to fail. No, I'm not. Even when the Son of God Himself says, this is who you are. No, I'm not. And not only am I not that person, I'm better than them. Because even if they all fall away, I won't fall away. We only begin to believe that we deserve greater than what we have when we lose our sense of gratitude. That's why the Bible calls us so regularly to praise and to worship. And to God, you are great and you are awesome. The implication is, I'm not. God, you are so generous to me. I think about my blessings. I meditate on them. Some of us were meditating more on what we don't have. I had a friend named Mark, and he had had some problems, and he had been arrested for DUI, and he was in the paper, and he was complaining about it, and his ex-wife had, had married somebody that was better looking and richer and more, you know, bigger house, and the kids just loved being there, and they didn't want to come be with him, and he always, he'd just come into church, and he'd complain, and he'd complain, and finally, I'd had enough of it, and I was talking to him, and I said, hey, man, who's standing behind you? And he went to die. I said, don't turn your head. Just tell me who's standing behind you. And he said, I can't do that. I said, why can't you do that? Well, I don't have eyes in the back of my head. I said, exactly. You were not designed to look in two directions at the same time. You're either going to look forward or you're going to look backward. You're going to look towards God or you're going to look away from God. And spiritual pride causes you to go into your prayer closet and say, God, why can't I have that? And I should have this. And you should bless me this way instead of, God, thank you so much. The most joyful people that you and I have ever known are not people that spend their time thinking about what they don't have. They're people that spend their time praying and praising and worshiping about what God has blessed them with. 
Look at verse 29. Even if everybody falls away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And, G and Peter insists emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. The second ingredient is no accountability, flying solo. There was nobody Peter saw as being in his life. There was no brother in that room that was there to hold him close to Jesus. Peter was the original, all I need is Jesus, God. And I've known ministers like that. I don't need anybody else. I just need Jesus. And we're warned in Scripture that we need each other. Hebrews 10 says, as we see the day approaching, we should gather together even more. The average Christian goes to church now 2.4 times a month. Now think about that. The early church were meeting almost daily in each other, and in, in, in many of them were meeting actually daily. But they were meeting very frequently during the week, and they were gathering together. As we've gotten 2,000 years closer, we've gotten to the point where, you know what, church is something that's optional, it's something in my life, it's helpful, it's useful, but it's not particularly essential. Accountability means having people in our lives who not only have the right, but also have the desire to ask us the hard questions. When I was a uh, a young man starting out in ministry, I, I was elevated to a position that I probably shouldn't have been elevated to. I was the youngest guy in the country doing it. Uh, it, was a, it was a national position, but I was over several states in terms of the youth departments and evangelism departments of churches. And I would be able to go to different places and travel and speak in different churches. And, and boy, I was really excited about this. And I had an older minister call me up and say, yeah, but how's your family? What are you doing for them? And I, you know, man, you don't even know me. Immediately the flesh starts to kind of justify. But he was absolutely right. Dave, you're prioritizing Dave. And if you do not rule over your own household well, you're not going to be able to walk in the blessing that God has for you. Thank him for the blessing. But recognize that if you don't take care of what God has already blessed you with, you're not going to keep walking in this blessing. See, confession isn't some Catholic thing. We just had communion a few weeks ago, and I talked about how Paul says, examine yourselves, right? So if there's anything in you that is unconfessed, any sin, get it out. And he says, when you do this, you're acknowledging the body, and to failure to do this is to, to, failure to, acknowledge, to fail to acknowledge the body. James says the same thing. He says, confess your sins, not to God, but to one another. Of course I confess my sins to God, and that's important, because if I confess my sins to Him, He's faithful and just and will forgive me. And as I confess, I'm reinforcing the understanding that that behavior is wrong and needs to be dealt with and needs to be repented of. But I tell you that once you confess to somebody else, boy, it gets real. Years ago, I had some people in the church, and the church I was pastoring had really grown, and, 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 and there was a woman that decided her husband would make a better pastor than me, and I don't know if she was right or not, but what I did know is that God had not called her husband to be the pastor. He had called me to be the pastor, so we had a problem. She was actually even telling people in the church she was praying against her church so that there would be problems. Imagine you get to that point where you are praying against the work of the kingdom, that Jesus said even Satan himself cannot stand against because you want something different to happen in the church. See, when you begin to hear negativity coming out of your mouth, zip it because we're called to edify. We're called to encourage. If you have a problem with somebody, Jesus says, go to that person, but don't tell somebody else about this issue. But I knew personally that it was really just raking on me and just getting to me. So here's what I did. 
I stood before the church on a Wednesday night. I was getting ready to teach, and I, I, there was probably 150 people there that night. And I said, I don't have a problem if with gossip. I don't have a problem making up stories. I don't have a problem running people down. Here's where my problem is. I don't readily turn the other cheek. My initial response is to smack back. So somebody runs me down, I want to run them down. And I want you to hold me accountable for that. I never had to have anybody hold me accountable for that because once I've said that to 150 people, boy, it was real. And I was very conscious if I began to clap back and say, Pastor, did you hear what so-and-so said? And immediately the flesh... Nope, nope. I already told the church to call me on it. So if I'm asking them to call me on it, then I need to make sure that I'm walking as an example to them. Look at verse 32 with me. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Don't miss that. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting enough? The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. The third ingredient that we have to get rid of is that of spiritual apathy. I don't want you to miss because earlier in this passage, Jesus said that Peter would fall. You're going to fall. Here he says, watch and pray so that you don't fall. Now, why would he say that? Jesus knew that Peter would fall. He knew that. Here he's showing us why he fell. Very simply, had Peter watched and prayed, he wouldn't have fallen. The fact that Jesus knew he wouldn't watch and pray doesn't negate that truth. Peter, if you would watch and pray, you would not fall. Now, Jesus knew he wouldn't do that. Jesus knew that he would sleep. I don't know about you, but if the Lord came to me and said, Dave, I'm going to let you visit any moment in history that you want. Jesus in the garden at Gethsemane would definitely be in my top three. Watching the Son of Man wrestle. Watching the Son of Man pray. Watching angels attend to him. Being able to be present in that hour and the disciples were asleep. This wasn't unusual. We read in John 4, though here's Jesus ministering to this Samaritan woman. It's about to, to cause a, a great revival in Samaria. And where were his disciples? Figuratively and literally out to lunch. They weren't there. And they come back and say, hey, Lord, have, have some lunch. And he says, I have food to eat you know nothing about. My will or my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Now, interestingly, if you look at that passage in John 4, it said that Jesus had to go through Samaria. No Jew ever had to go through Samaria. You could be dying of a heart attack, and you would go around Samaria. Jews simply did not go through Samaria. But Jesus said, I do nothing except what I see my Father do. So the will of God is for me to go here, so I have to do that. And some of us need to recognize that we've been trying to circumnavigate the problem. We've been trying to go around it, and Jesus is saying, you've got to go through it. That's what builds the character in you that I'm trying to, to construct. But 
we get apathetic. And I mentioned last week that the Bible records as many as, or more failures as successes, not because God wants to beat us down, but because He wants us to learn and understand why they happen. 1 Corinthians 10 says, these things, what things? The things that the Jews went through in the Old Testament happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. The devil wants us to sleep. We look around and we say, yeah, you know, Pastor, I really should be, should be praying more. I should be, should be more faithful. I should be serving. I, I should be witnessing. Yeah, the church should be more alive. Yes, the church. We agree to all that stuff. I've never had somebody say, I had a young man come up to me and say, can you help me? with my prayer life and when we get together and talk because I really want to get my life exactly where my prayer life where it should be and I looked at him I said well I'm not going to tell you my prayer life is exactly where it should be Paul said not that I have obtained all this or have been made perfect yet but here's what I do I press on I labor I strive towards what towards that which God has called me to be the calling that God has on my life I, I push towards it. I labor towards it. I strive for it. Because I, I, I'm not going to claim perfection, but I don't want to miss what God has for me in my life. And I will never get it. I will never receive it if I'm asleep, if I'm apathetic to what God is doing in my life. Look at verse 43. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests the teachers of the law and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. The fourth ingredient is substituting your strength for God. Peter didn't listen when God said, you're about to fail. That's when he should have hit his knees. Jesus tells us, make sure to get, fill up the oil in, in your lamp while there's the opportunity to do so. While you can avail yourself of the opportunity to fill your oil, do it when you can because there's going to come a time where it's going to be too late to do so. And Peter could have hit his knees and planted his face firmly on the carpet, so to speak, but now when his back is to the wall, he can't turn to that well. And so what does he do? He turns to his sword, his own strength. I've heard people say something like, well, uh, especially in the Northeast, and, you know, when you had such a large Catholic population, they would say, why would I go to a priest for marriage counseling when he doesn't know anything firsthand about the subject? All right, fair enough, but how often do we do the same thing? We see people in the church couldn't find the secret place of Psalm 91 with a road map. We see people that, 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 are, that have no idea how to get intimate with God, and yet they're trying to teach Bible studies. Worship leaders who don't go into the secret place during the week, trying to take even less committed Christians there on Sunday. And I know this isn't easy to hear, and you can get mad at me for saying it, but you can't argue with it. If you don't have a prayer time and a prayer place, you don't really have a prayer life. Until you commit... To God, I, I, I tell you, I, I shared this story earlier. We had, a, we had some friends who had been in a church where there was just an ugly, ugly pastoral scandal. Pastor had fallen away and her husband left the church for nine years. It was really bad. 
And when my kids were little, uh, my oldest was about eight or nine, uh, this lady came to me and said, Pastor, I want you and Ruth to have a date night. Now immediately I said, oh, but don't worry, we do stuff as a family all, all the time. She says, no, I want you and Ruth to have a date night each week. And I said, well, that'd be great, but our kids are little, we need a babysitter. She said, I'll babysit. And I said, for the next five or six years? She said, yes. I would rather babysit for the next five years and commit to that than have to endure and go through what I went through before. And she did. And to this day, my wife and I have a weekly date night because we have learned that if we want to continue to have the kind of intimacy that we had when we were newlyweds, we've got to commit to that process. And guys, if we do not commit to the process of building intimacy with God, we're going to see ourselves drift away. I have a good friend, Steve, and he used to say he was our men's leader, and he'd say, and he was one of these guys, I mean, good-looking guy, right? I mean, he's GM of a, of a luxury car dealership, right? Everybody wants to be his friend, great-looking wife, great-looking kids, right? Seemed like the perfect life. And he was leading the men's, the men's prayer group, and he said, guys, it's easier to make one decision than 52. In other words, we're going to be meeting here each week. You can either decide I'm going to be there one time, I'm going to be there on Saturdays. Or you're going to wake up every Saturday having to make a decision, and sometimes the enemy is going to win. Now, I wish that a guy who's less good-looking and shorter <laughs> could say that with the same force, and people go, oh, amen, all right, pastor. But receive truth. Receive truth. There are things that the enemy does not want you walking in because he knows that as you build intimacy with God, I think about where, where here's this young man possessed by a demon. And Jesus says in, in, in Mark chapter 9, the disciples come and say, how come we couldn't cast it out? You gave us the power to cast it out. How come we couldn't? And he said, this kind only comes out by prayer. Now, interestingly, when you study that passage, and you can go look, it's in Mark 9, 29. When you study that passage, Jesus doesn't pray. You don't see Jesus stop and pray. He doesn't say this kind only comes out by a prayer. He says through prayer. If you're not walking in the, in the intimacy that prayer produces, you're not going to have the anointing to really deal with the hard stuff when it hits you in the face. And that's what we have to recognize. When we come up against that, seven sons of Sceva dealt with the same thing. When we come up against situations that we don't have God's power to deal with, we end up relying on our own strength. We substitute our strength for God's. Look at verse 66. Jump down there. While Peter was in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. And he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. And again he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you're one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. The fifth ingredient is that of deficient character. Why can we, a church, run 500 on Sunday morning but only 25 for prayer meeting? Why can we sing holy, holy, holy and then watch filth that turns the stomach of God? Why do we have time to do everything we want but no time for prayer 
with the Word of God? Why do we have plenty of money for stuff we desire and have no problem with the world trying to constantly sell us junk we don't need, but we get irritated when the needs of the kingdom are conveyed to the church? And why do we not see the miracles that we used to see in the church? In a word, because we've become deficient in our character. Be sure your sin will find you out, Numbers 32, 23 says. People can't trust our word. They see us cussing all week. We talk about purity and then watch half-naked women in movies. We get on social media and recommend ungodly movies to others. And then we run down people we disagree with. Let me get real with you. To achieve intimacy in a relationship, at least one party must change. If you want to achieve intimacy in any relationship, at least one party must change. Now let me give you another truth. God is not going to change. That leaves you. That leaves me. God is not going to lower it. Now we've done that. Greg Laurie talks about how we've, we've watered down our message to expand our reach, and in so doing, we've defeated our purpose. When we water down the Word... I, look, I know there was a lot of junk in the charismatic Pentecostal church years ago that shouldn't have been there. But boy, nobody went to a church 30, 40 years ago like that and thought, I can just stay right like I am, right? Man, no, you can't. They would sing songs like, if your hair's too long, there's sin in your heart. Okay. <laughs> you can Google it. Somebody's right now. No, no way. Whoa, he's not lying. You would be, I mean, you had four spiritual colors. This is what you could do. Now, like I said, I know a lot of that stuff we jettison, but the pendulum has swung so far that we've just thrown the baby out with the bathwater. It's okay to say, hey, this stuff is legalism and it's not, it's not working to reach anybody. And some of it was. Some of it was just pure self-preservation from the culture around them. But at some point, you've got to say, God, have we thrown away the ingredients you do want us to have? Because you can't have a Passover supper without the lamb. And without the herbs and without the other ingredients, we're going to talk about that last week, the things that we do need to have in our life. But before any of that takes place, God says you have to get rid of. Now imagine that I had this filled with Coca-Cola. And I wanted water in it. And so I just began to pour water into the Coca-Cola until it looked more like water than Coke. You'd say you're an idiot. If you want Coke in that container, pour out, or water in that container, pour out what's in there. Amen. We call out to God and we tell God, Lord, we want your presence. Lord, we want to see you work like you've worked in the past. Look, I'm not into craziness. I'm not into just, you know, running around and acting like an idiot just for the sake of... I've been in churches that do that. But man, I am hungry for a legit move of the Spirit of God where sinners just fall down in His presence and where people just see their lives turned around. When I think about the Hebrides revival in Scotland, here's a minister. He's on the platform and he's getting ready to preach at Keswick Week, which was the biggest conference on the church calendar. And all of a sudden, while he's just ready to preach, the Spirit says, get up and go to the Hebrides Islands. And I'm the featured speaker. Go. And he obeys. And he excuses himself and he says, somebody else is going to have to preach. You're the keynote speaker. He gets up and he goes to the Hebrides Islands. He's looking around. He says, where's the, where's the pastor of the church? And they say, well, we don't really have a pastor anymore, but there's a guy who kind of takes care of the church. He's the, he's the town post, postman. And so he goes to him and he says, um, I'm so-and-so. And he's like, oh, you're just on time. We already have the flyers make up, made up announcing that you're going to be here. 
It was said that during those meetings, people who were miles away from the church, who were simply going about their business, fell in their faces in their fields and accepted Jesus Christ. In the great awakening, in the, in the move of God in the upstate New York area, we saw the same thing where people working in factories would just fall down on their faces. Guys, I believe that God can use the Bridge Church as a catalyst for doing something amazing in this generation. But it won't happen if we just decide to be spectators to it. It will Look at every great move of God. It's preceded by prayer. And I firmly believe it's not preceded by the people of God just deciding, hey, let's pray. But the Spirit of God coming upon people and saying, begin to seek my face. I want to do something great in your presence. Let me just get real here and let it fly. If you had eggs and flour and sugar and vanilla extract and shortening and some salt, how many ingredients would you need to make a vanilla cake? None. You'd have them all. So ask yourself this, how close are you to having the recipe for spiritual failure in your life? See, if some Christians you know would have asked themselves that question, they might not have lost their families. Some pastors might not have lost their churches. Some evangelists may not have lost their ministry. I know Casting Crown several years ago had a song called Slow Fade. It's a slow fade. You're still going to church, you're still doing some Jesus stuff, but you're not really watching you're not seeking, you're not wide awake for the purposes of God, and you slowly begin to fade, and you wake up one day, I will guarantee you that every scandal, every preacher, every ministry, every church that's gone through this type of, of falling, that they look back and say, God warned us, God called us. I'm a big believer in grace, but I hate the way it's been misdefined. Because I've seen so many times where these things happen and 15 seconds after the preacher has just climbed out of bed with his mistress, oh, grace, grace. And I'm, I'm, I've only been here a month, so I know this is a little presumptuous. If I ever fall into that behavior, fire me. Fire me. Don't put me on suspension. Don't, you, know, you know, you can still love me. You can still pray for me. But you're not helping me by pretending that my sin isn't grievous. That you're, not, that, 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 that you're allowing me to remain in this state of mind where I don't suffer any consequences for my sin. And I've seen that happen. The Bible says grace, Titus 2, is that which teaches us to say no to ungodliness. How in the world did we get to the place where it excuses ungodliness? That didn't come from God. Devil's the best devil there is. He's really good at his job. There is no one better in all of creation at being the devil than the devil. That's why Jesus says, watch and pray. That's why the, the Bible says your enemy prowls about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. If you lived in an area of the world where there were literally lions, I've got a picture of myself fishing and an alligator is maybe a foot away from my brother's foot. <laughs> and, and people are like, nope, nope, I'm out, right? <laughs> I'm like, well, I grew up in the Everglades, so we kind of tell the difference between an alligator that's just looking for an extra sandwich and he's used to fishermen throwing food and not. But I tell you what, if you were in an area where there were real lions prowling about looking to get in your house, you wouldn't leave the front door open. You wouldn't leave the windows open. 
You would be cautious. And the Lord warns us, we have a very real enemy who's trying to get the church to fall asleep, who's trying to get to the church to, to get to that place where we don't accomplish the purposes of God. Now, we end up with two choices. Jesus said there will be a church radiant who has purified herself and made herself ready. That church, and, and I'm not a hugger, but man, I want this hug. I want the one where I fall into the embrace of Jesus and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, here's something I know about Jesus. He never lies. He's not going to say, well done, if I didn't do well. He's not going to call me good if I'm not good. And he's not going to call me faithful if I wasn't faithful. He's not going to call me a servant if I wasn't a servant. That's on me. So take a look at the people who have been seen as followers of Christ who have failed miserably, and you'll see several things in common. First, they had all the ingredients in place. They just never stopped to examine them. And second, the oven of testing produced the bread of failure. Guys, we can't avoid the oven. Jesus said, in this world, you will face many troubles. We understand that we're going to go through some stuff that, that the houses of both went through the storm. But the difference was the same storm that proved the foundation of the one house destroyed the other. The same fire that purifies gold destroys chaff. We can't avoid the fire, but God says that we can throw away the stuff that causes the heat in the oven to produce the wrong kind of bread in our lives. Jesus calls us to go ye therefore and bear fruit. We will bear fruit of some kind. Paul said it can be the, the, that of malice and wickedness, insincerity and falsehood, or we can have the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That is up to us. So I want to say something as I get ready to close. We have a, an awesome prayer team. And that prayer team is here. If you have a personal need, you have something you want to discuss with somebody, you want somebody to pray over a specific need, we are here and I will be here and Pastor Daniel will be here and our prayer team will be here after every service. But I am also, every time I preach, going to open up this altar if you need to respond. Because that may just between, be between you and God. You may want somebody to touch it and agree, but I am going to give you the opportunity week in and week out. And today I want to ask you, to be honest, do you see ingratitude crawling into your life? Do you have accountability with other Christians? Is there spiritual apathy where church becomes take it or leave it? The word becomes take it or leave it. The Bible, the, the, the time, the, your time in prayer becomes take it or leave it. Are you walking in the power of your own strength and counsel or the power of the Spirit? And does your character line up with the call of Christ on your life? If any of those ingredients are present, do not hesitate to come down to the altar and worship Him and say, God, I present myself a living sacrifice and I lay this before you and I will not leave this place the way I entered it. Come on, let's stand together. Lord, we love you today. Thank you so much, God. Your word doesn't pull punches. You don't treat us like children. But we're your children. And I thank you, Father God, that you love us like I would love my adult children. 
enough to tell them the truth, enough to warn them. Father, I pray for anybody in this place where the enemy has been crawling in and getting into their marriage, getting into their relationships with their family and their kids. I pray for anyone who's been compromising and your word has opened up their eyes to it. I pray, Father God, for anyone who has failed to see the importance of your word and of prayer and of your church worship. And I pray today, Father God, that your spirit would just move freely in this place so that we would get before you and say, God, I leave this at your altar. Heavenly Father, I know that you love me and I know that you want only what is best for me. Father God, you will not allow the work of the enemy to remain in me and you will give me the choice to rid myself of it. Today, church, God has given you that opportunity and I want to pray with you and I want to worship alongside you because I believe that God truly will set some people free if we will simply say, get before him, fall before him and say, God, take this. It has no place in my life. We worship you, Lord. We worship you, Lord.